You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with B.J. Novak. This program originally aired in 2014. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHBR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with B.J. Novak, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Novak is perhaps best known for his role as Ryan the Temp on NBC's long-running sitcom The Office. Anybody can be Prince Charming one day a year with the dinner and the flowers and all that. But you know what impresses me? When a guy can do that no days a year. In addition to playing the contemptuous temp, he was also a writer, producer, and director on the show. Not one to be pigeonholed, B.J. Novak crossed over onto the big screen, most notably in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Do you control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo the Apache and the Little Man. The German's nickname for me is the Little Man. And as if to make my point, I'm a little surprised how tall you were in real life when you're a little fellow, but not circus midget little. He played a composer working for Walt Disney and Saving Mr. Banks, and more recently was cast as a villain in the almost sure-to-be blockbuster, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. B.J. Novak is a star, rising fast, and with a debut collection of stories, he's one of few in the Hollywood firmament to dip his toe into writing fiction. B.J. Novak stepped on stage in front of an exuberant audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to read a few stories from One More Thing, stories and other stories. Thank you. Thank you, Dreadnought. Haven't heard that song in a while. This is um, wonderful. I've heard about the Music Hall for years, but I've never been here, and and it's beautiful and a lot bigger um, than I was prepared for. Um, That's what she said. I am I'm contractually obligated to say that phrase once a day for the rest of my life. I am extremely happy to be here, and, and uh, I'm going to read a few stories from my book. Um, this book is the most uh, personal thing I've ever done. It, I wrote the stories to be entertaining, but I, I found out afterwards that they often had themes that I had been uh, dying to express and didn't have any excuse to do them other than in a form that I hoped would entertain people. Um, A lot of the stories are different in their tones or themes or narrative voices, and while they all proceed from a funny idea, or so I thought, they aren't always laugh-out-loud funny the whole time, Uh, so if something gets a little more emotional or philosophical, it doesn't mean I'm not super talented. (laughs) I hope. Um, So this first story I'm going to read, shorter one called All You Have to Do. I wear a bright red t-shirt every single day. I've been doing it for years. That's all you have to do to meet the girl of your dreams. It sounds easy, doesn't it? It is. That's exactly my point. Wearing a red t-shirt is the hardest part of it all, and it's as easy as could be. Once I have the red t-shirt on, I just live my life exactly the way I want to live it. Maybe I take my dog for a walk in the park. If there's a new bar or restaurant I've heard about, I might go and check that place out. And if there are any friends I want to catch up with, I might grab a bite or a drink with them. But there's also nothing wrong with going to a restaurant or bar by yourself. In some ways, that's even better. I wear one with a pocket, but it doesn't matter. Bright red is the thing. Then, when you're done living your life for the day, you just go to this website called Missed Connections 
and type in red shirt. Don't put it in quotes because some people might say red t-shirt without a hyphen and some others might spell it T-E-E or some other little variation. There's no one way to spell t-shirt. Isn't that interesting? So anyway, just type red shirt. It will take a little bit of extra time, but that way you'll be sure not to miss anything. Then you get to see who liked you. More important, who liked you for you? Not you changing your behavior to impress anyone or please anyone. Not you on date behavior. Just you being you. And anyone will tell you that's the whole point. You want to meet someone who likes the same things you do and who likes you most when you're most being yourself so that when you are in a relationship, the person will be truly compatible with the real you. That's all you have to do. It really is that simple. Now, When someone does contact you and it seems like it might be a match, should you wear another shirt on the date besides the red t-shirt so it doesn't seem like you only have one shirt? Or should you wear the red t-shirt as always in case the first date doesn't go well and you want a simple way to check if you caught anyone else's interest (laughs) while you were out on the date? That is a very interesting question and one that I think about a lot. I will let you know what I do when that comes up. All you have to do. Thank you. I'll read one more uh, short one that takes place uh, again in sort of more present day real world and then um, I'll step aside for a bit and then I'll I'll speak with Virginia. Um, Thank you again for being here. This story is called Missed Connection, Grocery Spill at 21st and 6th 2.30 p.m. on Wednesday. I was outside the Trader Joe's at 21st and 6th at around 2.30 p.m. last Wednesday. I was wearing oversized sunglasses and a small straw fedora hat, light blue jeans, a black t-shirt-like top, and had freshly washed shoulder-length dirty blonde hair with bangs. I'm 29, but people sometimes guess I'm anywhere from 28 to 30. I was carrying two paper grocery bags. You were walking by me in the opposite direction, carrying groceries too, but only one bag. You asked if you could help, and when I tried to explain that then your hands would be just as full as mine, I dropped a bottle of salsa, red, medium spicy, Trader Joe's brand, or Trader Jose's, as you corrected me. But it didn't shatter, which we both found interesting. I told you my name was Lila, L-I-L-A, and you told me you had a cousin who pronounced it the same way but spelled it differently, L-E-I-L-A. It turned out we were both from the same area code in New Jersey, 551, and we talked about our hometowns for a bit and that diner where everyone used to go after games in high school. Then you walked me home carrying one of my two bags, even though I said it made no sense to, and you insisted on bringing them all the way inside for me, and then I made a pot of coffee, even though I was only making one cup for you, and then you explained about French presses and Kerrig spelling machines. (laughs) Then we both looked at the clock at the same time and realized we had been somehow talking about coffee for over an hour. You looked in my eyes and said it felt like we had somehow known each other for a long time. And I said, I agree. And then we made out on my green quilted couch with a blue stain on the left armrest. And after our very first kiss, you pulled away from me and caught your breath and just said the word electric. (laughs) 
Then you kissed me again, and we made out until we both looked at the clock at the same time again and realized we'd been making out for three hours. Then we watched Iron Chef together and then Planet Earth, the African Plains episode, and we both agreed how that was totally the jackpot Planet Earth because so many are about jellyfish or algae, but all anyone really wants to see are giraffes and monkeys, etc. I said I didn't want you to leave, and you said me neither. And then you slept over at my place and borrowed navy blue pajamas with yellow stripes and a hole in the left knee from when my brother visited me. And we both said we weren't cuddlers, but we cuddled anyway for almost an hour. And then finally, you slept on the left side of the bed, which was perfect because I sleep on the right. I slept on my back, which you said was pretentious. And I said, what do you mean? That's just how I sleep. How can it be pretentious? And you said, like, you think you're a beautiful angel or something. And I said, maybe you're just really into me. And we kissed again. (laughs) Then you turned to sleep on your stomach with your head facing left. And I said, doesn't that hurt your neck? And you said, for some reason, usually not. But sometimes, yes. And that your fantasy when you were a kid was to get a bed with a hollowed out hole straight down from the pillow so you could sleep with your head face down and straight. And I said, like a massage chair? And it turned out you had never had a massage. So... I said, let's go this weekend so you could check out if it was similar to what you had been thinking of as a kid. And if it's how you want to sleep, it'd be weird. But hey, it's your life. And you laughed and said, deal, twice. Deal, deal, like that. (laughs) Then you realized your phone, a Motorola, had died and I didn't have the right charger. And you said, that's probably a sign that you should get going anyway and take care of some stuff at home. And I said, cool. And then we made a plan that you'd come over on Friday and I'd have to cook a dinner that included every single ingredient I had in those Trader Joe's bags, Iron Chef style. But then the next day you didn't come over or call to explain why or reschedule it. I know that I gave you my number, but now I realize that sometimes I write numbers in a scribble, especially when I'm excited, which I was. So maybe you haven't been able to decode it or left a message for the wrong number. I know this sounds crazy to say after one encounter, but I kind of fell for you pretty hard, and it has been forever since I've connected to anyone like this, and my heart is kind of broken in a million pieces. Hit me up if you think anything in this description matches anything you remember, and if so, maybe we could chill sometime? You were wearing a red t-shirt with a pocket. Thank you so much. So much. Author, actor, and social media phenom B.J. Novak, reading from his debut collection of short stories, One More Thing. The reading was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. We'll be back after a short break to talk with B.J. about testing out his stories on unsuspecting audiences, the role Luke Perry played in his decision to become an actor, and high school hijinks with his Office co-star, John Krasinski. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for Writers on a New England Stage with B.J. Novak, right after the break. Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with B.J. Novak, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. B.J. Novak is perhaps best known for playing the unbearable temp, Ryan, on NBC's The Office. He also wrote some of that show's most popular, most cringeworthy episodes, including this one, Diversity Day. So who else? Let's get this popping. Come on. Who's going? Who's going? Uh, 
Let's go here. Oscar, right here. You're on. Okay, Michael. Uh, uh, both my parents were born in Mexico. Oh, yeah. And uh, they moved to the United States a year before I was born. Yeah. So I grew up in the United States. Wow. And my parents were Mexican. Wow, that is, that is a great story. That's the American dream right there, right? Thank you, yeah. Um, let me ask you, is there a term besides Mexican that you prefer something less offensive? Mexican isn't offensive. Well, it has certain connotations. Like what? Like, I don't, well, I don't know. But well, what connotations, Michael? No, no, no. It must there, have no. meant something. No. Now, remember. I'm just, I'm just curious. Honesty. Well, yeah. Novak joined me on stage to discuss one more thing, Stories and Other Stories, his first book of fiction. In the book, Novak extends beyond sitcom conventions, revealing himself to be a keen observer of contemporary culture, with a wry way of tweaking familiar situations, parables, and cliches. Here's an example. Julie is on a blind date, and already a bit tipsy, when her companion tells her he's a warlord, and admits feeling disappointed about getting so many negative mentions on Twitter. And like the stories he read earlier, a few vignettes exposing a deep melancholy lurking just below the laugh. I sat down to talk with B.J. Novak and take questions submitted from the audience. I'll admit, it was my first interview for Writers on a New England stage in which so many questions from the audience were really appeals for a date. Those were evenly tied with questions about whether he and his office co-star, Mindy Kaling, were going to get married. Given that and the stories that he read, I asked him about his views on romantic relationships and whether the Jewish dating service, started by his parents, had any influence on his search for the right match. So do you think you learned a lot about dating from your mom and dad? Uh, apparently not, um, <laughs> if I'm still at it. Well, when you were in the dating market, I'm guessing, you got out of college, what, 2001? Yeah. Was that it? So things were just kind of ramping up for online dating. You ha you're in this position of having the experience of old school, non-technologically based life, and then the sort of technologically based life, which it seems that you embrace pretty heartily. I like technology a lot. Yeah. Um, whether I should or shouldn't, you know, I feel that half the time I'm being told uh, to be more present and the other half the time I'm being told, why didn't you text me back? So it's hard for me to know <laughs> who to listen to more. Your father was also a writer. Yeah, still is. And, um, yeah. And, and what's interesting, I thought, uh, about your dad, I think he's ghostwritten a lot of books. I think the New York times called him one of the most famous people you don't know, mm -hmm. but I just wondered if for you, you know, writing is one of those things you learned from your father, wanted to do, didn't want to do because of him. I didn't especially want to do it, but um, I didn't think it was cool. It was really, it was something everyone in my family was better at than math type of stuff. But I didn't think being a writer was cool until I saw Pulp Fiction huh. and kind of could tell that Quentin Tarantino was the star of that movie, to me anyway. And that, that made me want to do it. I think the advantage of having a father as a writer, and it's a very big one, but it's a subtle one is that I didn't spend five years wondering if I could try to be a writer. I didn't spend years in law school writing at night, which is the life path of most successful writers. They took a long time to get up the courage to try something so crazy. So my head start was just thinking like, yeah, all right, let's just be a writer. 
And that was very lucky. So you were a writer on The Office as well as an actor. And maybe yes. a lot of people don't know that you've been writing for a long time. You were writing scripts. Yeah. Working them in the script room. I'm wondering about how different it was for you to be, you know, writing is kind of a lonely business. And if you're doing it by yourself compared to... Not tonight. To- Thank you for coming out. <laughs> <laughs> this No, this is what I... Um, what schedule I, I set for myself when I wrote the book was... I had been in that very social environment on the office. I was in a writer's room, and then as soon as you're done with it, you take it a set, and you act it out, and you see what works, and it was a very social way to write. And when I started writing this book, I wanted to, um, I guess I didn't know any other way than to give myself something similar, where you were writing on your own, but the, the reward was to get to bring it to people and try it out and play with it and change it. So I, it wasn't anything as grand as this music hall, but I did, when I was writing the book, once a month or more, go to a comedy club or a theater and say, I'd like to read you some stories. And I would work out the kinks and all the stories uh, by reading them out loud. So you still had an audience. I'm wondering about the role that an audience plays for you. Audience is everything to me. And the dedication in this book is to the reader. And I thought, who is everyone kidding? No, nothing is dedicated to anything but the reader, at least in my mind. Every, you're just hoping, I assume, if other writers are like me, you're, you're hoping. You're leaning in on every possible reaction of this invisible hypothetical reader. That's all I care about. And it, the audience is a bunch of readers listening to me. Uh, so for me, everything is about the audience and the reader. How is it different than doing stand-up? Well, it's not different in that sense. Because you're writing jokes. But you're yeah, not. my father told me when I started stand-up, and I don't know why he felt like he could give me this advice because he's never done stand-up, but he, was, <laughs> he came up with the best advice that I've given to other stand-ups who love it. He said, how about you only do what you like and only keep what they like? And that absolutely became my rule of thumb. I would never walk out with anything I didn't like. And that became relatively true for my stories too, unless I had some real reason to think someone's going to get this, even though this crowd doesn't. I would just say, yeah, you're right, and just lose the story if, if they didn't like it. But you really have to trust an audience in that case, too. I mean, you're, you're a famous guy. You're a Hollywood guy now. And I wonder if there's any suspicion of, you know, are they laughing because I'm me or because the story's really good? Do you ever mistrust that? Um, I think everything is inflated to a degree. Jerry Seinfeld said in an interview that the first five minutes, they're just laughing out of gratitude for his TV show, and then it gets real. <laughs> um, so maybe if he gets five minutes, I get about eight seconds. <laughs> but I, I think at the beginning, people are generous. And, but everything is just inflated. Everything is amped up. And you can tell, sometimes I'm doing okay, and then I get a huge laugh. And I don't think, oh, that's great. I think, oh, that's how they could have been laughing. Okay, I get the first story wasn't that good then. You just recalibrate. I read that Greg Daniels, who was embarking on the project of turning this hit British television show, The Office, to American audiences, saw you doing stand-up and decided to approach you after, after hearing your first joke. Is that true? Is it impossible? Well, he says it was the first joke that caught his interest. I'm sure that if the next 25 jokes were bad, he would have changed his mind. But he told me it was the first joke. Um, this also leads me to a high school. I know you went to, to high school in Newton. Yeah. Yes. Um, High school buddies with John Krasinski yeah. from The Office. Yeah. Now, I heard, there's another story um, that could be apocryphal, that you guys together did the senior show. Yeah. 
and that they canceled after that all senior shows at Newton High. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I, really, that's what th- I... These are separate okay. uh, things. Well, tell me about your show. <laughs> I don't think there was a correlation, I hope. Our show was great. Um, it was called Our Final Mission, and it was about four kids who were visited by a mysterious ghost who told them they had to accomplish various things before their senior year ended, and John Krasinski played the ghost. And he was great, and that was his first role on stage. And he has credited it with making him want to be an actor. Really? Um, what yeah. was it for you? Um, for me, it was, um, honestly, speaking completely honestly, it was being in seventh grade and being completely unpopular and everyone having posters of Luke Perry and Jason Priestley in their lockers and thinking somehow that if I became an actor, <laughs> that would make me as good looking <laughs> as Luke Perry. Um, <laughs> It, it turns out <laughs> that's not the case, but you do, um, it's funny what makes you want to do something. I mean, it, he's no longer, I think it's, it's okay to say he's no longer my acting hero. Um, <laughs> but it, it, he is what made me want to do that. I thought, well, then I'd be popular. Well, the, the voice in a lot of these stories is kind of like that little kid. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you, if you feel like you were contacting that when you were writing. This kid was full of wonder about the world and kind of imagining things differently. Well, I've had a very um, hyper fast turnover in her, in her life, in my brain. I'm always thinking of things and I somehow remember them all. Mm-hmm. And so I'd never really had an outlet for them unless it was a character in the office, basically, who could say this stuff. And there were a lot of characters. It was a great outlet, but there were a lot of thoughts that had built up that had never gotten to come out. And so with this book, I think I, I just had been saving up a lot. So some of them are sort of thoughts that I have had since I was like seven or eight and had nowhere to put. And I'm like, Oh, I'll use that thought. You know? (laughs) So you got 63 of them together. Yeah. It really is a laugh out loud, funny book. I found it that way. And I suppose if you guys were listening tonight, you probably had the same kind of reaction, but you, you take on a lot of different voices in this book too. You're, um, a principal, you're uh, the hair, obviously. John Grisham, yeah, um, among other Tony Robbins. You, Tony, Tony Robbins. Robbins. Well, it's some... actually the well the somebody narrator. who is in love with Tony yeah. Robbins. Actually, give us a little synopsis of that story. That story is about a woman who wants to seduce Tony Robbins and turns to Tony Robbins for motivational help in achieving her goal. <laughs> Tony Robbins doesn't want to do it, but he's so compelled to help someone (laughs) achieve their dream that he advises her on how to make herself attractive enough to him to destroy his marriage. (laughs) He just can't resist. What he can't resist is training someone to achieve their dream. But it's not the only story where you're really taking a dig at self-help. And I'm just wondering if, you know, somewhere in your past, I don't know, you were made to read self-help books go to therapy, we're in rehab. Is there any darkening in your past? Very classy venue to ask a TV (laughs) actor if they've been to rehab lately. Well, I suppose if you had, you'd be on some kind of post-rehab show, so maybe not. Well, there is water in this class. No, I've never never been to anything, fortunately, that dramatic. But um, I think everyone, even if you're not in therapy there or addicted to self-help books, that stuff is very much in the culture. Mm. It's hard to resist the, even I had a personal trainer once who said, how you do one thing is how you do everything. 
And I thought, God, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. You know, I don't know where she got it from, but like these things are just floating all throughout the culture right now. And, and they all sound true to me. Well, you played, you were an ex-addict in the office, right? You went to rehab yeah, in the yes, office. Yes, that's true. My Did character. you do any sort of special training to, to, to come out of rehab? This is really on your mind, huh? <laughs> You're like, I'm going to nail him. I'm going to put him in the classiest theater. I'm going to find where out. Mark Twain and Frederick Douglass spoke. I'm going to seduce him with questions about his craft. And, and then, then I'm going to nail him on rehab and Mindy Kaling. Quite a long con you've got going here, Virginia. I've got pages and pages of lead into the Mindy Kaling and rehab questions. Actually, you write also in the voice of women a lot in this book. Yeah. Especially lovelorn women. And I wonder where that comes from. I mean, I know you do have a sister who you probably get a lot of advice from, your younger sister. I give a lot of advice to my sister, Keo. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a real brat on Twitter. She exists on the internet, but yeah. I don't know if she exists anywhere she else. She hates when people say that. <laughs> Um, I, a lot of my friends are female. Those voices are in my head a lot. And and so I liked just sort of expressing, I I mean, I love distinct voices. I love, even on Twitter, younger people switch from babe to BB to BAE. I noticed the day that switched, I was fascinated by that. Just every little thing that makes up somebody's voice. And these days it, it carries across text messages and, um, you know, how a Tumblr page is constructed. That's all an individual's voice and which emojis you use. And I can't even imagine what the Android emoji world is like because I, I happen to have an iPhone, but I know which crying emoji means which and which smile you only use if you're too drunk to choose the correct smile (laughs) and whether the sly guy at the beginning or the end of a text means something different. I love that. I love every little thing that can make up somebody's voice and I want to capture it. So sometimes the voice in my head is, is female and I I just want to, I feel like I'm that person when I'm writing. Actor, producer, and now author B.J. Novak recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage. We'll be back to talk more with B.J. Novak about his very first book, One More Time, Stories and Other Stories. He'll also tell us about his favorite episode at The Office and why he thinks fame has changed him for the better. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when Writers on a New England Stage continues right here on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with B.J. Novak, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Novak has had an enviable rise in the world of comedy. He was a member of the Harvard Lampoon and the Hasty Pudding Club. He landed his first gig writing for a short-lived sitcom just days after graduating from college. 
Two years into his TV career, he wound up in front of the camera on MTV's Punked, and then eventually found a home as an actor, writer, director, and producer on NBC's The Office. He joined us on stage to talk about One More Time, his new collection of stories, which begins with a retelling of an old fable that beautifully illustrates his own career trajectory and pretty much sums up his personality. Here's B.J. Novak reading from The Rematch. So this first story I'm going to read is a, a sequel of sorts to a, a fable that always drove me kind of crazy as a kid. I always thought it was an unrepresentative, unfair fable. So I started off the book with a sequel to it. This is called The Rematch. In the aftermath of an athletic humiliation on an unprecedented scale, a loss to a tortoise in a foot race so staggering that his tormentors teased it would not only live on in the record books, but would transcend sport itself and be taught to children around the world in textbooks and bedtime stories for centuries. That hundreds of years from now, Children who had never heard of a tortoise would learn that it was basically a fancy type of turtle. From hearing about this very race, the hare retreated, understandably, into a substantial period of depression and self-doubt. The hare gained weight, then lost weight, turned to religion, then another less specific religion. The hare got into yoga, shut himself indoors on a self-imposed program to read all the world's great novels, then traveled the world, then did some volunteer work. Everything helped, a little bit, at first, but nothing really helped. After a while, the hare realized what the simplest part of him had known from the beginning. He was going to have to rematch the tortoise. <laughs> no, came the word from the tortoise's spokesperson, the tortoise prefers to focus on the future, not relive the past. The tortoise is focused full-time on inspiring a new generation with the lessons of dedication and persistence through the popular speaking tours he does and his charitable work with the Slow and Steady Foundation. <laughs> the smugness and sanctimony of the tortoise's response infuriated the hare. The lessons of dedication and persistence? Had everyone forgotten that the hare had taken six naps throughout the race, unequivocally guaranteeing victory to anyone? A horse, a dog, a worm, a leaf depending on the wind, anyone lucky enough to be matched against the hare at this reckless, perspectiveless, and now forever lost peak phase of his career, an offensive period of his own life that he had obsessed about and tried in vain to forgive himself for ever since? How could anyone think that the tortoise was relevant to any of this? A minor detail of the race, known to few but obsessives, of which there were still plenty, was that there had been a gnat clinging to the leg of the tortoise throughout the entire contest. Was this gnat too, worthy of being celebrated as a hero, full of counter-logical lessons and nonsensical insight like, right place, right time, takes down talent in its prime. Or, hang on to a tortoise's leg, who knows where it will lead. No, the lesson of this story 
has nothing to do with the tortoise, thought the hare, and everything to do with the hare. How he had let himself become so intoxicated with the aspects of his talent that were rare that he had neglected the much more common aspects of his character that also, it so happened, were more important. Things like always doing your best and never taking success for granted and keeping enough pride burning inside to fuel your success, but not so much to burn it down. Now, the hare knew these things. Now. Now that it was too late. Or was it? What was that lesson again? Slow and steady? The hare started running again every day, even though there was no race planned. He ran a mile every morning then two, then ten. Before long, he added an afternoon run to his training routine, a slower one with a different goal in mind. On this run, he made a point to start a conversation with everyone he came across. Boy, I sure would love to race that tortoise again someday. You think anyone would want to watch it, though? Then he would shrug it off and jog along to the next stranger. Hey, what do you think would happen if I uh, raced that tortoise again? You think I'd win this time? Or do you think pride would get the better of me all over again? <laughs> then he'd shrug and run off again at a provocatively medium pace. <laughs> Slowly, steadily, anticipation built for a tortoise hair rematch. After a while, it became all that anyone could talk about, and eventually the questions made their way to the tortoise. No, said the tortoise, but this time his no just led to more questions. No now or no ever? Would he ever rematch the hare? If so, when and under what conditions? If not, why? Could he at least say maybe? No, said the tortoise again, never. They kept asking and he kept saying no until eventually everyone gave up and stopped asking. And that's when the tortoise, sad and dizzy at having all this attention given to him, and then taken away, impulsively said, Yes, okay, yes, I bet I can beat the hare again, yes. I'm undefeated against the hare, thought the tortoise. Actually, I'm 1-0. I'm undefeated in my entire racing career. How do you win a race? Slow and steady, that's what they say, right? Well, I invented slow and steady. This is good, this will be good. One time could have been a fluke, twice there will be no question. The race was set in 10 days' time. The tortoise set out to replicate what seemed to have worked the first time, which was nothing in particular. Simple diet, some walking around, a little of this, a little of that. He didn't want to overthink it. He was going to mainly just focus on being slow and steady. The hare trained like no one had ever trained for anything. He ran 15 miles every morning and 15 every afternoon. He watched tapes of his old races. He slept eight hours every night, which is practically unheard of for a hare. And he did it all under a wall, taped full of the mean, vicious things everyone had said about him in all the years since the legendary race that had ruined his life. On the day of the race, the tortoise and hare met for the first time in five years at the starting line and shared a brief private conversation as their whole world watched. Good luck, Hare, said the tortoise as casual as ever. Oh, you know what's funny? Do that again. Huh, from this angle, you look like a duck. Oh, now you look like a hare again. Funny. Anyway, good luck, Hare. And good luck to you, tortoise, whispered the hare, leaning in close. And just so you know, nobody knows this, and if you tell anyone I said it, I'll deny it.
but I'm not really a hare. I'm a rabbit. <laughs> this wasn't true. The hare just said it to f*** with him. <laughs> On your mark, get set, go! There was a loud bang, and the tortoise and hare both took off from the starting line. Never in the history of competition, athletic or otherwise, human or otherwise, mythical or otherwise, has anyone ever kicked anyone's ass by the order of magnitude that the hare kicked the ass of that tortoise that afternoon? Within seconds, the hare was in the lead by hundreds of yards. Within minutes, the hare had taken a lead by more than a mile. The tortoise crawled on, slow and steady, but as he became anxious at having lost sight of his competitor and panicked over what he seemed to have done to his legacy, he speeded up, less slow, less steady, but it hardly mattered. Before long, less than 20 minutes after the seven-mile race had begun, Word worked its way back to the beginning of the race that the hare had not only won the contest and had not only recorded a time that was a personal best, but had also set world records, not only for all hares, but for all leopards, and indeed for all mammals under 20 pounds. <laughs> when news reached the tortoise still essentially under the banner of the starting line, he fainted. Oh, now he's napping? Isn't that rich? Heckled a nearby goat, drunk on radish wine. Those who didn't know the context, who hadn't heard about the first race, never realized what was so important about this one. A tortoise raced a hare, and the hare won? Okay. They didn't understand the story, so they didn't repeat it, and it never became known. But those who were there for both contests knew what was so special about what they had witnessed. Slow and steady wins the race, till truth and talent claim their place. Thank you. That's an excerpt from The Rematch, the first story in B.J. Novak's book, One More Time, Stories and Other Stories. Since B.J. Novak's career appears to be on such a fast track, I asked him if he felt like he was one of those hit-it-out-of-the-park kind of guys, and his response brought us back to the fable. You know what? It's funny. I feel like the, the hare, which is why I wrote that story, The Tortoise and the Hare, because my life, I felt, especially in school, was about that first joke gets you hired, and then the other jokes aren't as good. I felt like I was always off to a fast start, and then everyone else caught up, and it made me angry. We've just given me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on, let's, someone's got to stand up for this, for this hair. You're not the slow and steady kind of guy. No, I'm, I'm fast and then take a nap and then realize <laughs> someone's ahead of me. <laughs> All right, so that leads me to a question from the audience. If you could be any mythical creature, what would you be and why? I would be Icarus and I would, I would make it all the way to the sun, I'm sure. <laughs> And that, by the way, came from Abby, Meredith, and Heather, single across the board. How do you know that? <laughs> they really wrote that, now, single people, across the board. We don't usually get people signing their names, BJ, yeah. and, and nor do I get Twitter handles, emails, numbers, descriptions. Do you want those? Or? Um, I could just, just hand talk them after off the, um, after the show when we're <laughs> off air, and we'll work it out. 
Well, loads of people are asking here also about your experience uh, on The Office. You were on The Office? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you have the weirdest holes in your research. <laughs> well, you wrote, you wrote some of the most, the absolute favorite uh, episodes. Diversity Day comes to mind. Sexual harassment. Chair model. Do you have a favorite episode? I have a few favorites. I think my classic all-time favorite is an episode called The Injury, which was to me a really funny, a f- funny defining episode very early on in season two that Mindy Kaling wrote about Michael. It, the inciting incident of the episode is that Michael Scott has um, grilled his foot on not burned, grilled his foot. <laughs> On a George Foreman grill that he has set up on his bedroom floor so that he can wake up in the morning to the smell of crackling bacon. And when when he was trying to use his version of a snooze um, delay on this, he stepped on the grill, burned his foot, needed it bandaged, and came into the office believing that he was handicapped and needed to lead a handicapped awareness seminar. And that, it was so funny, and yet the characters were able to play it like you actually thought they believed it and this was happening. Uh, It really showed me how far the show could go, how far the writers can go, and how far the actors could take it. Another related question, is it a love or hate relationship you have with the phrase, that's what she said? Um, I I think I love it. I'm... For better or worse, the person who put that in, the sexual harassment episode. <laughs> and um, I don't know how we feel about it. Well, you kind of revived that phrase. That yeah, it was something I had heard, obviously, a lot. And I thought that Michael would love it. Oh, God, would Michael love it. And I think there was a scene in which Todd Packer did it in front of... I don't know if this made the final cut. See, I know everything that was ever pitched, but I don't know what's in every final episode anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but... At one point, Todd Packer used the phrase in front of him, and you saw just Michael light up like a little boy and try to use it, and then he got in trouble for that. I think that episode was was gone by the time we did the episode. Mm. So, I, no, I, I, I love it. Was it painful to lose those things? I mean... This You're is setting what... me up here. <laughs> <laughs> these things that you pitch, these ideas oh, that, that yes. you lose. yes. Yes, it can be painful. Absolutely. How about for editing this book? I mean, was this kind of your own thing? Did you? I know you thank editors at the end of the yeah. book. I didn't know how much they should. No, it was up them. to me. They helped me a lot, but it was. I didn't. I'm happy to say I have no regrets over a piece that I cut mm-hmm. or a piece that I included. And it was, you know, some books are like pamphlet size. Some books are like the Bible. Like, they don't care how long it is. Was there any pressure? <laughs> That's what she said pr- pressure from. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I missed that. But you did direct the book trailer? Yeah. Video? Have, have, has anyone seen that trailer? Oh, my God. It is so good. But I wonder if that, if that sort of image of the writer... So basically, it's a, you know, a cafe in France, and everyone's smoking and talking about existential things, and he's kind of outside the yeah, window. Yeah, trying to get in that world. Trying to get in that world. Yeah. Do you, does that haunt you at all, that sort of image of this is what a writer is? I mean, I know you're making I fun love in it. that. I love it. And when I thought of what I would make for that trailer, I thought... How do we look really cool? And I thought, oh, black and white or smoking. And then I thought, come on, dude. <laughs> and then I thought, like well, let's, let's do that and make fun of it. Let's make fun of the instinct that I actually had to look really cool. But you were a liberal arts major, and I have a question here from the audience. What's your best advice for a liberal arts graduate? 
it depends what you want to do. If you want to write, my advice is always write for the kid sitting next to you. My advice is always write to entertain someone like you, to entertain real people. That is the valuable writing. That's the writing that becomes valuable in your life, not the writing for a professor. Although that's fine training. The writing that's important is the writing for your peers. And it feels different. And you know when you're getting it right because they ask you for more. Have you considered writing an autobiography? Yeah, I would like to. Um, but I think I'm not ready yet. It's interesting. This book, I first I thought I should try to write an autobiography because that's what comedians do. And they mm -hmm. do it very well. And I kind of thought that if I wrote my own life story, I would hide myself in a way. I would try to present a version of myself that was the coolest, self-deprecating in all the right ways, uh, charming, funny, you know, but a little bit sensitive. I didn't want to sell myself. Um, so I thought, forget that. I'm going to write, I'm just going to write all the ideas I've ever had and just forget about me. Just And it turned out that ended up being much more personal because it that is my life story. These are the things I think about all the time. These are the ideas I've had forever mm -hmm. and wondered about. And all I ended up revealing myself because anytime I write a woman in love with Tony Robbins and she has to say what love is, it's probably my own views that are coming out. I don't know what else she'd say. So it, I ended up inadvertently revealing myself a lot. And I think if I had written an autobiography out of the gate, I would have hidden myself. Uh, I would still like to do it someday, but I think I needed to, to do this first. I thought uh, it seemed to me really courageous, you know, to do something different. I think you get judged differently as an actor writing a book than somebody else who, you know, wrote a book years ago and became an actor later. I mean, do you feel like you were, you've been judged or given a more skeptical eye than a first time debut writer? Uh, I think perhaps rightly so in that it's easier for an actor to get published, but when people... Or a seven figure book deal, for example, perhaps. I don't... When people lump me in with James Franco, I think, really? You think I'm as famous as James Franco? I couldn't get enough of that. Like, great. I think for me, I, I always thought of myself as a writer. So when people are like, why are you writing a book, Mr. Actor? I'm like, really? You thought I was a good actor? You've seen me and stuff? I, 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 I've always thought of myself as a writer. Um, a number of people are asking about fame, your relationship with fame. What's the most frustrating thing about Hollywood? And I wonder about being observed and fame has changed me for the better. Yeah. Fame has made me a much better person, much more polite. Um, it sounds like I'm kidding. It actually has been great for me. And I wonder if there's a lot of people that fame, it's hard to say exactly why. I think it's much harder to grow up with people watching you and judging you and you either are destroyed or you come out, um, very strong. And I think I didn't know for a while, which would happen to me, but I have seen a lot of very famous people like Amy Poehler comes to mind. She is one of the most grounded exceptional. I don't know her very well. She's, if she's hearing this and I know she's from the region, but I, if she's hearing this, she's like, why does this guy like feel like he has the right to talk about me? I don't really even know her, but when I've met her, you can tell she's one of the most grounded, wise, cool people in the world that I've ever met. And I think it's probably because every, they, people say the worst things about you. And they're always what you're nervous that people will say. If you're 
out there blogging about any celebrity, like, don't they know they suck at this or whatever? That's, I promise you, that's what the celebrity is terrified about. They don't think they're perfect. They're insecure like everyone is insecure. And you read these things about your worst fear all the time, and you eventually have to um, know who you are or succumb to what people think you are. So there are aspects of it that can make you a lot better. Well, Tom Parada blurbed your book. A number of people have also uh, compared you to Woody Allen, another actor slash director. Quite a week for that. Right. Well, I was going to ask <laughs> if we think that blurb is going to make it to the paperback. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this at all. <laughs> now, you have, a, you have another book um, that you signed a deal with Knopf. I wonder what... Where you think you're going next? I mean, people are asking about films, what you're doing for directing. Is that something you aspire to do? Well, first I have a kid's book coming out. Another book without pictures, right? Yep. This is called kids The Book, book with No pictures. pictures. And um, it has no pictures. And I would like to write a, a book of... I really love this form. And I like that this form, for me, can be so flexible and jagged. I love that, I love that the book actually literally has those jagged edges. Because I wanted a book, I kept saying to my editors, I want this to feel jagged. I want a long story, and then a short one, and then a, a filthy one, and then a, an elegant one. I just wanted to not you to never know where it's going next. So I'd love to do another book in that form. Everything proceeds to me from writing. So I'd like to direct, but it's because I'd like to direct what I write. Mm -hmm. I'd like to act, but it's because I want to show people what I meant when I wrote that character. So did you envision some of these? Like there are a couple of longer pieces in this book or longer bits that could be great little movies, yeah. even, even that little misconnection. Sometimes I think of that. Sometimes I think of that, but I also have so many ideas that I wanted to write as, um, as movies. That I think I might just write those. Well, we really are glad that you wrote this book. Thank you. Please do join me in thanking BJ Novak for thank being you, here Elizabeth, tonight. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. The actor, producer, sometime director, social media star, and now fiction author B.J. Novak, speaking there about his new book, One More Time. Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with Yankee Magazine and River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Rachel Newbar. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Maureen McMurray. Digital producer is Sarah Plord. Music hall production today from Noah Lefave. Photos from the event are posted online at Clear Eye Photo. You can see all the photos and listen to all of the stories B.J. Novak read on stage, including one too saucy for radio. That's at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. <laughs>